The DSR Listener Survey is now here. Your voice matters, and we want to hear it. So please take a moment to fill out the survey and help us make our podcasts even better. You can find a link to the survey in the show description below. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Deep State Radio podcast, the one that started them all, the DSR Mothership. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and uh, we are joined by a great group to have a discussion about the uh, issue that is dominating the headlines this week once again, uh, and that is the current uh, war between Israel uh, and Hamas and the uh, crisis that it has brought to Gaza. Uh, I am joined today uh, by two of our um, esteemed uh, uh, and uh, admired regulars, uh, one, of course, being Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you doing, Rosa? Hi, David. I'm well, thank you. You look like you're in somewhere in the great American West. I, I am. I am in the great American West. I'm still in Wyoming. Um, well, uh, I'm glad to have you here at a distance. Uh, and of course, we have in Washington, D.C., from the Financial Times, Ed Luce. How are you doing, Ed? Wonderfully. Thank you, David. And we have a guest who is a friend of ours who has been on our podcast multiple times before, and who we admire also greatly. Rula Jabrial is a foreign policy analyst, a journalist, a novelist, and a screenwriter. She currently works as a visiting professor at the University of Miami. How are you doing today, Rula? Hi, David. Hi, everyone. Thank you uh, for joining us. Let me start with um, a column that I saw today that was particularly brilliant, uh, it says Netanyahu is an albatross around Biden's neck. Seems to be written by Ed Luce. Um, uh, Ed, why don't you talk a little bit about the premise of the column? Because I think it leads to a lot of uh, the discussion we're going to have. Thank you, David. And uh, happy to answer as long as you're the one who quotes from the ancient mariners, right? I, 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 <clears throat> I, I, I will water, water everywhere. And I saw Rosa More just had a drop to drink. To drink. Yeah. Go on. Um, yeah, so, um, the, the, I mean, in essence, the piece, um, you know, is arguing that Biden is right to say that a two-state solution has to be the goal from this situation. But unfortunately, he's got Netanyahu in the way. And with Netanyahu still in charge, I mean, not to mention some of the more extreme parties to his right, this is an impossibility. Um and Biden doesn't have control over who runs the Israeli government, and doubtless Netanyahu being the Houdini of not just Israeli politics, but sort of democratic politics around the world, will find a way of not going to the people for as long as possible, um, which of course, I guess, gives him an incentive to, to, to prolong this war situation. Um, but uh, that, that makes Biden um, a, a hostage to fortune. Um, because he's the strategy is to hug 
is to hug Israel close, which I think is the right strategy, but it's with the wrong Israeli leader, um, Netanyahu. And I think that puts Biden in extreme danger of being held accountable for decisions he's not taking, that Netanyahu will be taking um, and is taking, and that are going to get worse from here on in. And so really the piece is just a sort of a, a, a warning a warning sound um, on Biden's behalf for the risks he's taking here. Well, I, I, it's, it's a piece I encourage everybody to read into today's Financial Times, the day we're recording this. Um, and uh, it may sound to all of you who are listening like it's a very generous act of me to promote Ed's piece, as I do. Uh, but actually, what I'm trying to do is figure out my next column. And I thought if I have the right kind of discussion among the three of you, it will help tee that up. And it flows essentially out of what Ed has said. Uh, one of the things, uh, Rula, that Ed refers to um, are some of the comments that Netanyahu has made in the past several days, um, uh, quoting the Bible uh, in terms of uh, you know the you know admonitions that you know from God to protect the Jewish people, referring to a war between the children of light and the children of darkness, and some of the actions. Uh, that the Israelis have already taken, including in the past 24 hours prior um, to this uh, conversation, um, two uh, fairly massive attacks on the Jabali uh, uh, refugee camp, which have produced very significant civilian casualties. And so the question in my mind, and, and I'm going to pose it to all of you, but I'm going to start with you, Rula, is isn't it inevitable that in the course of the net, next several weeks, Netanyahu is going to stray so far away from America's advice and so deeply onto the dark side that a rift emerges between the U.S. and the Israelis. Thank you for this question, David. I think this was the main question that many Israelis and Palestinians. I am an Israeli-Palestinian, and I've been. You know, I was born into the conflict. I grew up in East Jerusalem and Haifa. I have families all over. But I've been seeing the conversation and I've seen Netanyahu's policies shaping my generation, shaping the history uh, of the region, but also the U.S. history, American's history. And, and, and three, and to answer the question, I have to go back to three moments that I think were crucial. Netanyahu lobbying against Itzhak Rabin being in a demonstration where people were holding the coffin in Yitzhak Rabin, holding the picture of Yitzhak Rabin, wearing an, an SS uniform soon after Yitzhak Rabin was killed. And but Netanyahu and his coalition, the far-right coalition that is today in government, that thwarted, torpedoed any possibility to have, a possibility to have, whether two state or one state, anything that is... And their whole idea that we can manage this. And Netanyahu has been telling Israelis in Hebrew on multiple occasions, I can handle the Americans. I know how to play them. He's even bragging to settlers on video saying, well, we have 80% support. It doesn't matter who's the president. And the problem with President Biden, who campaigned on rule-based international order, defending democracy, right? Whether it's at home, from Donald Trump and his minions, but also the Don now he is tying his Middle Eastern foreign policy to the Donald Trump of Israel. 
And this is the tragedy of the whole situation, that the guy that is discredited in the eyes of his own people, us Israeli citizens, whether Jews or Muslims or, or Christians, is the guy that the president of the United States, the most powerful man on earth, is basically supporting unconditionally. And yes, he can. the president can distance himself by saying, we advise them. But when you send them $14 billion of unconditional military aid, and then you see the massacres in Jabalia refugee camps, and the indiscriminate bombing and killing, and tie this to the rhetoric of Bibi Netanyahu with a religious you know, war, when your agenda is God, it's, you can't debate a God, right? When your goal is, and your, your, your whole purpose is to enact an ethno-nationalist religious you know, project of exclusion and purity, you, can't, you cannot debate with that. And then you see these images seen by millions of people around the Middle East, they want, they're not going, the people are not going to blame Bibi. They're going to blame Biden. And sadly, President Biden is viewed in the Middle East today exactly like George W. Bush. And this is a tragedy. It, 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 it is, Rosa. I, you know, I would never criticize um, Ed's writing in any way. Um, but I might add something to it, you know, because Netanyahu is an albatross around Biden's neck. But I would argue the albatross is ticking. Um, in other words, at some point, it's going to explode. What do you think could trigger that, Russell? Instead of a cross and albatross? Um, uh, no, of course, it's, it's already exploding. It's not going to explode. It's already exploding. I mean, the, the thing that I find most, uh, I, mean, I, I was about to say most appalling, but it's impossible to say what's most appalling because so much is so appalling. But so galling, um, and Ed references this in his excellent FT piece, is Netanyahu's embrace of the language of religious prophecy uh, to suggest that both that both that the Lord is on the side of his policies uh, and to cuddle up to evangelical right-wing Christians in the United States, um, you know, and whenever whenever people during a conflict start suggesting that God is on their side and God is just hunky-dory with the slaughter of people on the other side. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it is appalling. And, and the, the rhetoric Netanyahu is using does, I mean, I'm going to be careful, right? When we think about violations of international humanitarian law, his rhetoric suggests that he's perfectly comfortable with violations of international humanitarian law. I mean, the rhetoric he's already used about you know, every member of Hamas will be dead. Uh, you know, even that there's, you know, even, even Hamas, even combatants, there's, you know, the goal is not to say we will, we will kill everybody, but to, you can kill or disable the enemy, but you're not necessarily supposed to try to kill every last living person. And the deleted tweet from Netanyahu, uh, saying this is a battle between the children of the light and the children of darkness at a moment when children on both sides are being killed. But in terms of sheer numbers, uh, the number of dead Palestinian children, um, you know, is, is, is far greater than the number of, de of dead Israeli children and no children should be being killed in this conflict. I mean, I mean, his, his rhetoric is already explosive. Their actions are explosive. Of course, Israel has a right to defend itself. Of course, Israel has the right to defend its citizens. Of course, Israel has the right to seek to rescue its hostages and eliminate further threats. But, 
not at all costs. And he's making it very, very clear that he's willing to do it at all costs. And, and, and yes, I mean, I think, I think Rula is absolutely right. It's not enough to say, well, you know, we support them 100%, but of course, for urgent caution and restraint, uh, when you see them over and over and over, make it crystal clear that that caution and restraint is not going to be forthcoming. You know, at some point, you you have to acknowledge that you are you are to some extent complicit. Yeah, um, you do, um, Ed. You know a lot of the participants uh, in the U.S. government decision making on this. Uh, Joe Biden is a fundamentally decent man. The people in his administration are fundamentally decent people. They're grappling with an unbelievably difficult situation where they need to support an ally, but they also need to protect um, their own values. Um, and in, in some respects, although the early stages of this seemed like a precarious high-wire act, they were much easier than what's going to come. Um, and one of the reasons is that although one cannot score keep with the lives of babies, there is no um, number that is so large that it, you know, um, uh, seems seems greater than the life of one child that you know or care about. The reality is the number is going to go up, and if the number is eight thousand dead in Gaza today and three thousand or four thousand dead um, uh, children in Gaza, um, and it, you know, yesterday it grew by. A, hundreds more, at at a certain point, it's going to be 10,000. At a certain point, it's going to be 15,000. There'll be 10 times the number of Israelis dead. There'll be 15 times the number of Israelis dead. Can the Biden administration simply say, we're going to ride this out? Or at a certain point, do they have to pick up the phone and say, as they have done in the past, as Biden has done in the past with Netanyahu. Baby, this is the end of the road. Our support stops here and begin to distance themselves. Yeah, there was something, um, I hate to quote him, but there was something that Trump said the other day, which is, you spill a drop of our blood, um, we'll spill a gallon of yours. Um, and of course, that's always the logic of in, in asymmetric warfare. Um it was also something that the Stern gang that Ergun had, um, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s. Um, uh, and there's a grim sort of historical pattern to this. It's a minimum 10 to 1, sometimes 50 to 1. Um, and if you get up to those kinds of numbers, as you were sort of sketching out, um, you know, with, with each escalation of numbers of, of deaths, it becomes more mind-numbing, but also the, the politics globally become more intractable. And the politics locally of having any hope of building a viable, non-violent alternative to Hamas becomes more impossible. Um, I, I have sort of great deal of sympathy for the approach that the Biden administration has taken, because they're dealing with the leadership in Israel that exists, not the one that they would want. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, America has massive leverage. Over Israel, enormous. Ruler mentioned the fourteen billion. I mean, there is the annual three point eight billion, whatever it is now. Um, there is the sort of parts, the interceptors um, for for the 
for the for the for the Iron Dome. There are there are all kinds of things that Israel needs from the United States, and of course, it's two way. Israel supplies things to the U.S., but it is fairly one sided um, relationship. America has leverage over Israel more than almost any other ally, um, and it could demand certain things. Um, such um, as an end to settlements and a beginning of accountability in the West Bank, which is the other sort of dog to bark or shoot a drop, whatever the analogy is. Uh, it it could use you know its its power, though not overtly stated as a demand, that there be a new government um, not headed by Netanyahu. Now, I mean, I'm not suggesting some kind of a coup, but there are ways of bringing about these things in a fluid parliamentary system. Um, when you when you're the United States, um, and I would like to see Biden anticipating everything we're talking about and trying to do that now, to try and get ahead of this, because the deeper we go into this, the sort of the the more the more the blood sort of rises, the harder it is to reverse any of the negative consequences of this scenario, and they are they're really going to be deep. They're already deep. They're going to get deeper. Um, and the prospects of a two-state solution, which is Biden's, you know, quite rightly, Biden's stated goal here, the other, the alternatives being unacceptable, um, the prospect will just become ever more of a fantasy. Um, and the United States' reputation for being capable of being even-handed um, ever more in tatters. Twice, I think, maybe three times. The United States has made a really serious good faith effort to be even-handed. Under the Carter administration, with the Camp David agreement, only part one of which was fulfilled, the Egypt-Israel part. Um, Then under the Bush senior administration, which led to the Oslo Accords, which, um, of course, you know, then led to Rabin's assassination. Um, And then at the end of the Clinton administration, um, with the Camp David deal that Yasser Arafat walked away from. When the United States seeks to be even-handed, stuff happens. Um, and I would argue, and I know it's not going to go down well in domestic politics, which is complicated here, um, but I would argue that it is the most pro-Israeli thing an American president can do. No question. No, and no question about, about that. Rula, if you were in the position of advising um, President Biden, hearing what Ed has to say, what would you say? What what should the U.S. be doing right now that would actually be constructive? I would take, uh, I mean, what surprised me is all of this, what's happening today, was predictable and preventable. I I would like to go back one step or suggest that the whole premise for Middle East foreign policy that Biden put in place is I am sad to say this, it's a continuation of Trump policy. Let's do the Abrahamic Accord, continue on that path, which de facto ignored the Palestinian issue. We've been screaming from the rooftop as Israeli and Palestinians. I've been meeting with people on Capitol Hill and in the European Parliament to tell them the situation is getting out of hand. It's about to implode and explode. And I, I would show them footages of settlers in the West Bank and East Jerusalem doing horrific things led by members of this government, of the Bibi government, by Smutrich, Ben-Gvir, and others, by the, you know, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, and many others. And they were, t- they would tell me privately, we're embarrassed 
by what they are doing, but they would know they basically did nothing and they decided that a deal with Saudi Arabia and others that were not at war with Israel will somehow, you know, contain the conflict. If Hamas proved anything and in a horrific way, that you cannot ignore this conflict. You have the only way out of this is through the storm by solving it. So I would say to President Biden, who salvaged America's democracy, if he wants to save Israel, save Israel and, and protect Israeli national security in the long term, he will have to stop the talking point about managing and, and you know, somehow giving a little aid charity to Palestinians while giving weapons. I would tell him to be as bold as Itzhak Rabin and put on the table double track policies. At the same time, Itzhak Rabin used to say, I fight terrorism like there's no extremism and I fight extremism like there's no negotiation, something around, around that. But this is America's only success during the war on terror. The surge that General Petraeus led in Iraq was not a military surge, it was a surge of ideas. And the main ideas behind it that you cannot kill or defeat an ideology by killing masses of people. That actually will strengthen that ideology. The only way to defeat extremists is by addressing the underlying crisis that feeds it, fuels it. And in this case, is the military occupation in the West Bank and in Gaza. This has to come to an end yesterday, before yesterday. Otherwise, we'll in a hundred years war. So I would tell President Biden, what would you like to be your legacy? A perpetual state of war in the Middle East that drags America back with the Houthis actually, you know, Houthi backed by Iran threatening Israel and, and the militias, Hezbollah and, and others in Syria and Iraq and, and around the Middle East trying to drag America back into another war. Would you like to that your, be your policy or something bold or something brave or something that might be uncomfortable initially, but actually will change the whole dynamic in the Middle East. And he doesn't have to do it alone. He has allies today. The Arab League, you know, those people from the Abrahamic Accord, bring them on board. Tell them, look, we will lead, but we need everybody on board. And I agree with Ed. In Israel, there's room for that. I mean, you have Ami Ayalon, who's, you know, who was a head of the FBI in Israel who are telling us, Yaakov Perry, another head of, you know, Shimbet in Israel, all of them jointly telling you, absent a Palestinian state, Israel will never be safe. So put that proposition to President Biden. If the goal is really not domestic policy, but really the safety of Israel, that's the only path. It's hard, it's difficult, it's complicated, but at least start talking about it and putting forth on the table as, okay, I'll give you an option as Palestinians and distance you from, you know, radicals and jihadists and whatever, and tell the Israelis, my friends, a tough love. I love you. I'll support you unconditionally, but that's the only way you can be ever safe. Yeah. You know, it goes back, Rosa, to, to this core point in Ed's column. The United States has Israel as an ally. In order to be supportive of Israel and an ally, it has embraced the, an Israeli government that's actually the problem. Bibi is not the U.S. ally. The far right in Israel is not the U.S. ally. They're the problem. 
And so if you hope to solve this problem, you can't do so while you're simultaneously embracing and empowering them. Do you agree? Absolutely. And I think, I think actually it's worth making a, a broader point. Um, I think we're all in this conversation being very careful to distinguish between uh, is Israel, Israelis, and the decisions of Netanyahu and his allies in the Israeli government on the one hand, and Palestinian people and the actions of Hamas on the other hand. And I, and I think that part of the, the, the bind that Biden finds himself in, and I, and I, I, I share the sympathy for Joe Biden and other members of his administration who are, who are a terrifically difficult situation. But part of the bind that they find themselves in is that we're, we're at a cultural moment where if you say Israel is doing terrible things to Palestinians, there's a substantial risk that you'll be accused of being anti-Semitic. If you say uh, Hamas is doing terrible things to innocent Israelis, there's a substantial chance that you'll be accused of being Islamophobic or anti-Palestinian. And we're so much of the public discourse today is sort of conflating the actions of particular individuals or particular organizations or, or governmental decision makers and governments with, with those of uh, people as a whole. And that's part of what has made it, I think, so difficult for, for Biden, right? That, that we live in a country in which there are far more people who are sympathetic with Israel than there are with Palestinians. Um, there are far more people who know anything about Israel than the Palestinians. Still, there's you know, just a tremendous amount of ignorance of that, of that entire history. Uh, and we've seen this, and you know, I, I obviously teach at a university. We see this, we're seeing this constantly in American universities right now, as we are in other settings in the U.S., that the, the temperature is just extraordinarily high, and there is not much tolerance for listening to anything nuanced at all. You know, there is not much tolerance for anyone saying, hey, um, the Israeli people have a right to exist. All Jews have a right to exist. Of course they do. Um, but the policies of this government are terrible, you know, that they have contributed to this problem. That's not the same as saying that it was fine for Hamas to go slaughter people and kidnap people. Of course it's not fine. You know, that's horrific and awful too. You know, but but it's so... You know, Biden is operating in a cultural landscape that is itself filled with, luckily for him, metaphorical landmines. Um, and I think, I think, I, my guess is that they feel that their hands are much more tied. I mean, we sit here and obviously we say the U.S. has a tremendous amount of leverage. Um, I don't think Biden feels that way is my guess. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, well, what is, what exactly is Joe Biden thinking? You know, my guess is that Joe Biden is thinking, We've got a presidential election coming up. Um, we have, you know, I need to keep uh, uh, progressive American Jews on side. I need to try to keep conservative American Jews from going over to Trump. Um, I need to keep all the people who haven't thought about this very hard, but sort of have a vague general sense that the Israelis are good guys and Palestinians aren't uh, from from going over to become Trump voters. Um and I don't want anybody to, you know, there's clearly there is a rise in anti-Semitic attacks worldwide. You know, that's a, it's a real huge problem. Um, and I don't want to do anything that could in any way be, be viewed as somehow being in denial of that. And so he's, he's taking the, the safe route, um, which is this sort of mealy mouths, you know, we are 100% with Israel, except guys, please don't do that. Um, oh, well, you did it already. Well, we're still 100% with you, but next time, please don't do that. Um, you know, show restraint. Thank you. 
oops, well, you did it again. Well, we're still 100% with you, but we really would appreciate it if you would be a little bit nicer. And, and, and you know, does it work? Of course it doesn't work. Do they think it's going to work? I don't think they think it's going to work. Uh, I think they just don't see themselves in terms of domestic politics having any real option in a climate where the backlash will be so severe if they do anything otherwise. Uh, excellent point. Uh, this is the time in each of these podcasts where we say to everybody who's in the general public and not a member, thanks for joining us. And wasn't that a good discussion? And don't you want to be a member? Just go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. You can be a member for $5 a month. You get to hear about 33% more bonus content with each episode. Uh, that's what's about to follow here. Uh, so for all of you who are not members, bye-bye. For all of you who are members, uh, stand by.